In this episode, we break down three of the barriers that often hold centres and educators back from starting a bush or forest school program. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Raising Wildlings podcast, where your host, Nikki Farrell. And Vicky Oliver. Bush or forest kindies are growing in popularity and for good reason too. There are plenty of educators who are almost ready to take the plunge, but there is something holding them back. Well, today we're going to discuss three barriers that may be making the process of even thinking about starting a forest school entirely difficult. Before we get started, we'd like to invite you to like or subscribe or follow the Raising Wildlings podcast on your podcast platform of choice. We love sharing your stories, so if you have any outstanding moments that you'd like to share, take a screenshot and we will repost those to share your insights. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. So let's talk about bush kindies and breaking down the barriers to starting one. When we run our own Introduction to Bush Kindy workshops for educators in person, we spend the majority of the day, it's a full day workshop, working out the personal barriers that each person has, the deep questions that keep them up at night in starting their own programs. And there are a lot. There's a lot. (laughs) So today we're just going to touch on just three of these barriers that may be holding you back from starting your Bush Kindy or maybe holding you back even just from getting your kids outside. The first barrier we'd like to chat about is one of the biggest, the fear of death or injury. It's every educator and every parent's nightmare feeling responsible for something happening to a child who is in our care is something that many of us would find difficult to live with. So there's also the fear of ensuring litigation that could potentially close businesses and end in financial ruin, which would be the icing on the cake and many centres just don't want to take the risk. But we know from experience and from science that it is worth managing. Note we said managing and not taking the risk. Children who have been wrapped up in cotton wool their whole lives may suffer differently, but they still suffer. It's not just as immediately obvious, but the scars and the diseases are just as tragic. Mm -hmm. So how do we manage this barrier? Well, let's break it down. We risk assess them and we mitigate them where possible and we put in control measures Mm -hmm. for those risks that we can't eliminate altogether. So let's talk about one of the most common risks that educators bring up in our workshops. That's missing children and how we manage lots of children in an outdoor space when there are no walls or Mm. fences. It doesn't seem like, you know, as a parent who takes their child to the park, you know, having no fence or walls might not seem like much. But when you've got 30 children in your care, it can be really daunting to take that step the first time. It absolutely is. And so one of the very first things that we do when we are assessing for our site is we talk about how we're going to establish a boundary for our play. Mm. So uh, we will discuss this as a team, where the boundary is going to be. So when we first started, we actually, (laughs) we decided that we were going to use a visual barrier for our boundaries, but Mm. that wasn't just things that were in the environment. We actually used a bright orange ribbon Mm. and we tied it to trees and we tied it to random branches hanging (laughs) over the creek and in these obscure places. And I mean, they were still a visual barrier and they, and they were mm. good for a while, but eventually those sorts of boundaries can disappear mm-hmm. or they add to your load when you're having to put them up, replace, replace them. them, take them down at the end of your session if you're pack in, pack out. 
I know that there are some places that will literally put up like crime tape around their mm, boundaries. The, the orange ticker tape. Yeah. The flags, I mean. So that, that, I mean, that is a way you could do it. It's just. We've found it unnecessary. Yeah. Eventually. And, and look, whatever you need to do to get yourself out there feeling confident in the first place, do, do it. that. But keep assessing what you're doing and ask yourself and ask the children if you think it's necessary because we really, really quickly realised that the orange tape wasn't necessary, the ribbons. And it's a lot easier to actually point out landmarks. So in our forest school site, our boundaries are the grandmother fig, the top of the ridge where our mudslide is, uh, another group of trees on the other side, uh, a set of trees on one side of the creek bank, a certain pathway. And that's it. And then there's the natural barriers that, that they can't go past anyway. So mm. we make that really clear. But in addition to that, we will also ask children to decide on a boundary themselves. And mm. that it can be quite interesting. Really interesting. Mm. Yeah. When we go to other sites, when we we, we do um, Bush Kindy Consultancy as well. So kindies that are starting to run their programs will get us out to essentially just hold their hand the first session or two that they go out and we'll sit down and we'll go through the briefing and we'll ask the children, where do you think is a safe place for us to play today? And they'll pick like less than a five-metre, you know, radius. <laughs> but, yeah, they'll be like, oh, just that that stone that's like two metres away. And we'll be like, oh, okay. You know what? We actually think you might want to play a bit further than that. Like yeah. you might find yourself exploring further than that rock over there. Uh, so it's interesting how well they can actually assess their own yeah. personal boundaries. And we've seen the flip side of that. We've seen educators with the orange flags out on the first time that we've come to help them on their site and they have done probably a 10-metre square square with one tree in it mm. and very quickly realised that, A, that's not enough room and, B, when there's nothing to play with and no nature to interact with, children will go seeking it and that children are trustworthy. That's right. So it is a really important part, establishing that boundary. Uh, but one uh, one thing that I would definitely highlight is the fact that you involve the children in mm. the decision-making. And that means that it feels like a decision that they were consulted on, that they were a part of, and they're then more likely to stay within that boundary. Mm. All right. Moving on to another common barrier is how do we prevent injury? This is a sometimes not contentious, but Different kindies do different things. So mm. we're just going to talk about the reasons we've chosen why we do these things. So one of the easiest way to prevent injury is actually appropriate clothing. Mm-hmm. It seems really obvious, but um, shoes. Yeah, so <laughs> as we, we will touch at a time later down the track about the importance of going barefoot. And we do wholly believe in the importance 100%. of seeing barefoot. Absolutely. But... But <laughs> because we are a business, because we have a responsibility and a duty of care to our children, and we are also liable to our insurers, mm. having appropriate shoes on will help us to prevent the most common injuries that we have seen so far prior to being quite strict on our shoes policy. Yeah. So prior to us enforcing a, you know, you must wear your shoes policy, our most common injury was cuts and scrapes, stub toes and splinters mm. in and, the feet. And mostly actually when they're in the creek. Mm. So 
we get a lot of children saying, do I have to have my shoes on in the creek? And the answer is yes. And it has to be because we get freshwater mussels Mm -hmm. that children have cut their feet on, thorns uh, and glass because when you are in in nature, you can't help what gets washed down from upstream. So we have found glass in our creek bed before and so having shoes on is that extra layer of protection for their feet. Essentially, it's a practicality of it. You know, we know that minor injuries aren't a bad thing for children. Mm. You know, a splinter here and a cut there, the children will survive. But it means that one of our staff's eyes are taken off of a program that it was already needed to be ratioed at a higher rate. So by getting children to wear shoes, it means that we can be better at our supervision. That's right. And then other thing that we have and we recommend during our programs is for children to wear long pants. And it's one of those things a lot of people will say, how do I get my child to wear long pants, particularly when it's feeling a bit hotter? Mm. But it means that, and I will say this for myself, when I'm wearing my shoes and my long pants, I can walk through any part of our forest and mm-hmm. I don't even think twice about where I'm no. going. I'm still doing snake tubs, still doing all the things that we do to keep safe with wildlife. But I can walk around and know that if I accidentally stumble across something, my body has actually got a layer of protection there. Mm. That means that I'm I'm less likely to be injured. Yeah, it protect it saves us worrying about minor bumps and scrapes, mosquitoes and ticks. And as Vicky was saying, it's that extra layer of protection or confidence against snake bite. But most importantly, a mm. mudslide is way more fun in long pants. It really is, <laughs> yeah. The next thing is um, dressing for the weather. So while we're talking about injury, really this is hypothermia when we're thinking mm. about it. More so in the southern states, we don't really have to worry about that too much here in Queensland for our programs during the day. But in the southern states, you want to make sure your children have Definitely a raincoat, preferably rain pants. And that way, if they've got their layers on underneath, you're out for your three Mm. hours, two to three hours, you can go back, get changed into your spare clothes and be warm again. Yeah, and it also eliminates those hard moments where children are uncomfortable because they're wet and they're Mm -hmm. soggy. So if you've got the appropriate gear when it's been raining, then you will then be able to stay out for longer Mm. and you might also eliminate some of those emotions that come when we're not feeling comfortable physically overstimulated by Mm. all the senses i want to add there too that rain pants as an educator are probably the best thing i've ever bought yeah yeah i do not like a wet soggy bum i'm a grumpy old educator if i've got a wet bum and if i'm in rain pants i can sit wherever i play with the children yeah and they wash off really easily. Like I was Mm. in a program not that long ago and i thought oh gosh you know i'm sitting in this mud and over here and then you know, I looked down and I was actually still like it brushes off really easily yeah. and you stay quite clean. So they're definitely highly recommended. And reasonably priced as well. Mm. You can go to most camping stores and there's the budget rain pants for about 40 bucks and they'll mm. fit into a small pocket zip up bag. Yeah. But if you, you want, if you're out all the time, I would suggest investing in a pair that are comfortable mm. and do all the things you need them to do. It's tax deductible educators. It's mm. PPE. Yep. <laughs> all right. Another common barrier that we get is, oh, gosh, how do you girls know so so much? much. I don't know anything about flora or fauna. I feel like an imposter and that I won't be able to answer the children's questions. And then I can't keep them safe because I don't know what they can touch. I don't know whether, yeah, is that, you know, is that sap that's coming out of that tree going to make them sick? You know, all of those Mm. questions. So 
we're here to tell you that we didn't know much at all no. when we started. I moved up from South Australia, so it was like moving to a new country as far as flora was uh, involved. Mm. And you were on the Gold Coast. Yeah, and I'm marine. You're marine trained. is my yeah. area, so I could tell you all the things in the ocean. Not all the things, but a lot of things in the ocean um, mm. when it comes to eucalypt forests or anything like that still learning yeah and that's the key point there you don't need all the knowledge straight away learning together with the kids is a gift to them in itself so it reminds them that you never stop learning and may even empower them to develop their own teaching skills when they're passing that knowledge on to their parents Mm -hmm. which is that ripple effect of ecological literacy within the community and it just goes to show it gives them that confidence when they can pass that knowledge on to the adults that they love and care for in their yeah. life. And this is an opportunity for you to invite some experts, some parents or anyone that you know to come and talk about topics that you don't have any personal experience with. That could be water watch, land care, could be someone who we've often get people that come out that know a lot about reptiles and snakes. It could be someone that has an interest in birds. A really great and really perfect opportunity is to have First Nations guests come out where you're embedding traditional knowledge and stories and when you're down there. Mm. So you don't need all of the information. You just need to be that conduit for the learning to start. Yeah. Taking the children around your site and recording what you find through photos and pictures will really help to build the knowledge of the local area. So we often recommend doing a flora and fauna survey Mm. before you, or the first one or two sessions that you do. So getting children go around with cameras or tallying sheets and writing down and taking photos of what they see. There's a great Facebook group called What Plant Is That Australia? Mm. What Spider Is That Australia? What Snake Is That Australia? And sending in those pictures to those those people of knowledge and then creating your own flora and fauna database or a laminated resource that you can use and continue to grow on, which also looks great for your recording educators. Mm, Absolutely. So there is so many ways in which we can think about the things that are causing us to stop and be hesitant about starting a program Mm. and find solutions to these because none of this is impossible. It just means we need to think outside the box and give ourselves a little bit more confidence. Yeah. There are always going to be barriers that make starting a new program challenging. I mean, the best thing you can do is make a list of all the things holding you back and then just start systematically going through and finding solutions for every single one. And funnily enough, we have one of those in our startup planner in our online intro to Bush Kindy workshop. Yeah, so if you'd like some extra assistance with this, you can always sign up to this course, our Introduction to Bush Kindy course, on the 27th of October. Super excited about that. It's We've been running Introduction to Bush Kindy courses for mm-hmm. three years yeah. now, nearly four, and it's our favourite. Uh, we love running mm. professional development workshops. And we get inundated with inquiries from interstate, uh, rural areas and people even overseas, actually, since we've started the podcast, asking about whether we offer them. So we're really excited to actually be able to launch this product for you. Mm. And in next week's episode, we're going to pivot a little bit and Mm. give you some more insights into another part of our lives that we get asked a lot about, and that is homeschooling. So Mm. in case you aren't aware, Nikki and I both homeschool our children, specifically We've chosen to follow a philosophy which is commonly called unschooling. It's often known as self-directed education. Natural learning. Natural learning. And so we're going to start to talk to you about our own journeys. We've got a few guests coming in to talk about their experiences with homeschooling. And we're 
just going to have a yarn about this mm. aspect of our lives, which we think is fabulous. Mm. We hope uh, to give you a little bit of insight on how great the lifestyle can be for mm. your entire family, not just for your children. In the meantime, if you'd like a little inspo to get your family outside, then just head to wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash free dash downloadables to get our free nature scavenger hunt printable. And as always, we love doing this journey with you. So until next time, stay Stay wild. wild.